Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to this edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today, we have a special treat. We have Mr. Tom Suvantri. Tom, welcome to the show. I hope I pronounced that properly. <laughs> oh, you got it spot on. It's great. It's great. You sounded great. Amazing. Awesome. So let's start off the podcast with probably the best intro possible, which is who you are, what you do, and how we got there. Oh my God, that's a it's a long story. I'll try to make it short for sure. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I have a, a currently I have a, a, a what I would call a non traditional wealth strategy practice. I grew. I did not grow up in the financial services uh, industry. I actually spent the vast majority of my career in corporate America. So I know your audience. I know maybe is a mix from Canada, America, even worldwide but uh, stuck in corporate America for a while. So I kind of consider myself a little bit of a refugee from the corporate world, right? Spent 20 plus years doing that. But along the way, started learning about ways uh, the wealthy were actually trying to grow and manage their own wealth, right? I got caught in uh, with a lot of the typical experiences that people have with advisors and I wasn't finding anything that was unique right in my journeys around managing my money and so what what do you typically do you start learning it yourself what are other people doing and just like you i know big into real estate fall and fell in love with uh robert kiyosaki and the whole philosophies around managing wealth and being a uh, uh, growing cash flow and started doing that uh practice started my own financial practice you know while i was working in corporate america and found my uh, a way to get out right use that uh, a business and my own sort of wealth building uh, sort of strategies to uh, be able to extract myself from it. And so now I am just like in a almost like born again sort of guy trying to share some wisdom around how anyone could do it, um, especially if you don't love your job, you can get out and you can uh, have a freeing life and then maybe focus on things that you love. And so that's my passion these days. And, and I'm just so happy to be with you today and share some more about it. Absolutely. So what are some of the strategies that you uh, teach people to, uh, you know, to do with their money and stuff? Yeah. And a lot of it, you know, in finance, as you well, we can overcomplicate the heck out of things. Um, I think some of it is pretty simple. I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned and appreciated just being fairly risk averse is, I like, I like to protect things because I look at myself as my own biggest asset, right? To be able to produce and, and create new things. I know you're an entrepreneur, like create new things for this world to bring value. So I like to protect the heck out of that. So I don't have to worry about it, right? A lot of people are, are basically walking through life without a safety net. And one bad thing could basically ruin wealth. And I've heard it and seen it firsthand from others. And so that was always a core thing to make sure that I'm well protected. But a second big thing is just having access to cash, right? Strategically and banking differently, right? We are so used to relying on banking as our sole place to store cash, right? But, you know, we know over the last 10, 15 years, basically you're losing money by keeping money there, right? It's good to have some, some cash, but where you store it. So we leverage, uh, 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 philosophy and process around infinite banking to store wealth uh, somewhere else in a different vehicle, right? That we still have access control with. And so we use that to, to just for our storage bin and then leverage a lot of those, the, someone else's money, OPM, other people's money to invest in real estate, 
other people's businesses and cash flowing assets. So that's what's helped me to build enough cash flow so I could leave my job and have someone else actually helping fund it through uh, my own sort of internal bank banking system, really. Right. Now, how, how does that work exactly? Yeah. So we use um, and there's a, the book I, I refer anyone who's ever read it. It's called Be, you know, Becoming Your Own Banker by R. Nelson Nash. He wrote this a while ago and it was it was uh, using a, a uniquely designed uh, life insurance, like a whole life insurance policy to store cash. Right. It's something that people used to use all the time before the advent of mutual funds, stock market, it's a place to store money. And so within it, it's a very sheltered private sort of contract between you and a life insurance company, but you have first rights to borrow their money and use your money as collateral, right? We've, we've often come across this with say a home equity line, right? You have equity in your home. Um, well, you can borrow against that, use it as collateral. Well, we use the, our proceeds that are in a life insurance contract properly designed, right? That's immune from taxes and losses. And it allows us to borrow the life insurance company money or even a bank bank's money to leverage and use elsewhere where our money just sits earning and compounding over decades, right? And protects our family. So it's just a unique place that people are not used to uh, storing their wealth today because People say, anyone who talks around this space says it's the worst place to store money, um, but it's because they don't understand how powerful it could be done if you design it right. And so it's something that that's a kind of a thing that I've just grown to learn over myself and share with my clients. I'm uh, quite familiar with what you're talking about, so I'm going to pretend I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> from the, uh, you know, from the ignorance side, because um, there's a lot of questions that I'm sure people will have, and this is what I had in the beginning before I understood it. So, like prime example, because you're saying put money into a life insurance. Now, typically, what people think of is when they think of life insurance is that it's money that I that I'm paying towards a plan. So when I die, that my, um, you know whoever my kids wife yeah. whatever you know ends up having the money from it and it's usually a policy some of them even expire after so many years and some of them don't some of them you know there's different types of policies out there like i think there's universal uh yeah like whatever and i i don't really think you're talking about you know just a typical term insurance because your money will evaporate so let's dig into what kind of policy is there and you know like what's the benefit of investing into this policy over just say real estate that's kind of locked up as well. Yeah, no, it's, and that's why I, I always try to have people understand what it is. In my mind, it's not an investment because it's not, first of all, it's, there's no risk of loss because it's a contract and you're, the, the companies that are providing it are taking the risk. They're, they're basically contracted to give you guaranteed growth in the, in these types of accounts designed properly. So, it is, in my mind, a bank alternative. So just like anything else, if you're going to do real estate business, you're storing money to invest it somewhere. So that's just a pass through in my mind. It's just a different pass through in the sense that you can, it is immune from taxes. It obviously protects your business and your families with a death benefit, right? Um, but primarily it gives you a guaranteed financing source that you have access to. So it has higher return than bank accounts have historically, but it provides a whole host of other living benefits. And then if people are thinking about legacy planning, it obviously plays a large role in that, right? And that's what most people would equate it to 
is passing wealth through a death benefit to their heirs or charities, whoever they want. But while you're living and building your wealth, it's a tremendous place to just store wealth that's not is immune from loss. And when you want to use it, you get to use it without applications, without any approvals, and you just ask for the money and they give it to you. You have the first right because you are part of a, a mutual insurance company that um, you are a part owner. So that's what gives you the power and control over it. And then when you get financing, like you do for real estate, you can control the terms. So it's great, right? You pay it back when you want to. If you're doing fix and flips or you're, you're doing long-term rentals, you, you have the control when you want to pay that back, right? But you control it, which is a huge part of it. And I know that's what I'm sure you and your audience would, would appreciate is having that control freedom. That's why you probably got into real estate. <laughs> yeah. To some degree, right? So it, it, it's complementary, right? It's not an or, it's an and. Oh, I love how you said that. That is that is so true, right? Because out there, we all, a lot of people have that perception that you're going to do something or something else. And you're right, because that scarcity mindset is, unfortunately, part of my language here, but uh, parents fuck up their kids with this uh, mindset. And now the intent is to try to protect them, but you're actually showing them that there's limitations in a world that there actually isn't limitations. The limitations is your own limitations, not everybody else's. And we don't think of it that way, right? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. That's it. And that's exactly, I mean, your point's huge there, John, because, and that's why what we do with this is not for everyone, but the reality is we can, you know, certainly in the, my experience with a lot of these things, it's like, this is the only way to do it. And it puts people into, into a path and they almost don't even look around for anything else. Because I said, this is the path, this is the way it's supposed to be. And that happens in anything in life, in there are educational systems, you name it. This is a way to free up your mind. And then you can figure out what's best for you, right? And But it's just giving people more options and creative ways to do things that may be better for them, right? And, and that's all I'm trying to, we're trying to expose. Yeah, absolutely, right? And which brings up the other question, because you said there's zero risk like the um, like real estate and all that stuff, right? Now, where I'm going to contradict this a bit is that I don't believe real estate has much of a risk either. And where I mean by that, because I, I know there's going to be a lot of people watching who said, well, I've lost my house. And if you're in the States, oh, 2008 was uh, detrimental. I'm going to explain myself here because real estate is only a risk if you're unable to carry the loan or hold mm -hmm. on to the property through the downturn because there's no such thing as everyone thinks progress is straight up like this and it never comes down when the reality is it's this right and as long as you can ride that wave there is no risk um i would say a stock is a risk because the stock can go to zero mm -hmm. but real estate at the very worst even say the value does go to zero what ends up happening is you still have a piece of land and that won't stay at zero. It'll eventually come back up. The question will not be, what will I do if the, if the market goes down? The question will be, is how long will the market go down and when will be the opportunity to sell when it comes back up? And, and, and then you should ask yourself is, if it takes five to 10 years, can I maintain the property and hold on to it for that five to 10 years? And if the answer is yes, then you've eliminated that risk. If the answer is I'm, I bought a property, I over leveraged and I'm hanging on by a shoestring, then anything in the market can affect you. Then your property is at risk and then it is mm. a dangerous investment. And that's why I do not believe people should leverage properties to the degree that fluctuations in the market will affect their outcome. 
I believe you do it when you have what's called extra money. What I mean by extra money, investable money that you can afford to see leave and not, uh, you know, worry about where it went and just come back to it at a later date. Which, yeah. yeah. And that's what I mean by there's really no risk in real estate. It's a risk because people over leverage themselves. And that's just natural human tendency because they think it will not happen to them. And now where I'm going with this is that now your investment is within a, an insurance. And although this almost never happens, the possibility is there that the insurance company goes bankrupt. Correct. Again, maybe what's happened once in all of human history, if even, but the potential is always there because nobody can say nothing can ever happen. But right. obviously that probably is the least risky out of it all. Yeah. And, and and you're right. I mean, listen, when we think about it for some of the companies we use, they're, they're mutual insurance companies. So they're not public companies. Right. So they have private sort of ownership. And we we as insurers, we're also part of that. And some of them are 150 years old. Right. Have gone through depressions, world wars, and they continue to pay dividends. This concept of dividends where, you know, you're you're a part owner of the company, just like you get a dividend from a stock. Right. They pay that to insure in, in these the policy owners. So these companies have been around for a long time well before the stock market. <laughs> and so they have some longevity. Could something potentially happen? Of course, anything. Like we've seen in the last couple of years, we know things can happen. However, um, how they compare differently from a banking industry, they we know banks can create money through lending, right? They don't have to have their money sitting in reserves. Well, because of the nature of these sorts of uh, industries, highly regulated, they have to have way more reserves on hand to be able to pay for death benefits, because if they can't do that, this whole system falls apart. And so they're hugely, re huge reserves for these companies and way more than any bank, right? You go to a bank and they, they you ask them for a lot of money, they might set the alarms off because they may not even have it sitting in their bank account to give you, right? Because they've loaned it all out. Here they have to have it. And that's why we're able to ask for it whenever we feel like it. So is it safety? And there's also, obviously guaranteed by state, at least in America, like by state guaranteed um, uh, 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 accounts where the life, the life insurance companies have to pay into to protect against other life insurance companies falling down, right? So they have safeguards in place there as well. See, what I find fascinating about this, and we're, we're tying it with the banking system here, is that on paper, in theory, the banking system can't fail. And that's why they have a uh, ledger of uh, losses of what, you know, uh, acceptable losses. Like to me, acceptable losses, what a, what a stupid concept. <laughs> it's like, uh, you're going to lose some money. Well, then why would I lend it out? Well, you know what I mean? Like, this is just a, like, I mean, that's a possibility with investments, but I mean, on a banking perspective. Now, a lot of times what happens is most times and we're not talking about all the times but most times people's money in a bank is usually not in jeopardy and here's the reason it's not because they don't loan out your money and then some because they do but and it's not because of the reserves here's one thing i discovered and i was thinking about it yesterday ironically before this conversation i was thinking about this yesterday and they're allowed to line i don't remember the exact amount i always thought it was 18 times or 19 or 20 times but i'm thinking might only be allowed nine times or 10 times the amount that they're borrowed that they have in their account i mean and the point is if they loan out 10 times that means five people cannot pay them and they still made five times the amount of money and those risks are amazing like it would have to be literally 10 people 
not paying them in order for them to not pay you back your deposit. That's that that's nuts. <laughs> it's like what that to me that's a racket. Yeah. Right? Like like you said, right. it's fake money. The question I have that nobody will be able to answer it. Why is it that a bank could take your money and loan it out ten times? Because those are the risks that that like I said, reality is. Let's be honest. Maybe three out of ten people don't pay back because of whatever happened. So I can seven times my money, and I'm using the math five times my money. So why can't I borrow money from you and do the same thing and give up money I don't have just based on your thousand dollars and make it five times the amount for myself? That that mm-hmm. may like like how is it illegal for a banking system to do that, but illegal for a citizen to do that? It's no. the same concept. Yeah, but yeah, but but, mean- but government officials will say, "Oh, that's risking. You're putting people's money at risk." How's that not risky with a bank? They're doing the same damn thing. Yep. Absolutely. Spot on, John. And, and listen, that's that's the, the why this this concept that we're sharing around infinite banking is try to get away from that. Right. Because we recognize that fractional reserve lending creates, a, you know, we, look, we see today with the inflation that's dealing on. It isn't just the banking system that's created this. As we know, a lot of governments are also involved with this. hundred percent. Right. So but it's created the the, the inflationary um sort of situation we live in today, the banking system contributes to that. And so this, in our world, within our infinite banking sort of world, you can't do that, right? You can't just bake money up, right? You're borrowing from and have cash reserves available to use. And so it's a much more secure environment from from keeping stability of our, our money and our currency and our economy. And that's why we're such a big advocate outside the control and freedom and use of the dollars is, is kind of obviously on top of it. But it definitely is a, an alternative to think just for storage of, of wealth and then obviously protection of the thing that I call our biggest asset. That was the other factor is us and our ability to con- earn that we've got to protect that and nourish it because, you know, if we don't, the government's not going to take care of us. Right. And that's what some people want. But frankly, I don't want that. And I don't think any of us who kind of honor our uniqueness and our, our freedom would ever want that. Right. We're OK with doing it on our own, but we also yep. don't need entities to corrupt what we're trying to build. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, this is the what I find is the biggest joke. I mean, not not to too, digress too much here, but it's like everyone says that they want the, you know, the opportunities. They want the capitalist opportunities where they can build fortunes and wealth for their families. But then, oh, the government's going to save me. And it's like, well, one socialism, one's capitalism. And you can't really have both. <laughs> Right. And it, and it's like, you know, and everyone, you know, looks at communism, you know, who's in a capitalist country and make, you know, says, ooh, taboo. You know what I mean? Well, reality is based on the principle of waiting for the government to save you. How's that any different? Yeah. Well, I don't like to be controlled. Well, you think the government just sits around and say, says, who can I write a check to with no conditions? If you're getting any kind of government support for any reason, there's going to be strings attached to it. Mm. And so this thing that people tell themselves, I think it's almost like a way of creating an excuse or some form of, you know, story in their head that they can accept so they don't feel bad about what they're saying. Yeah, it's just really weird. But going aside from the fact that I just digressed there, let's get into the question that I actually wanted to ask you was getting into when people can, in a sense, borrow their money from the insurance company there, what is like... I have like a two-part question here is one is, are they allowed to borrow hundred percent of the premium? And the second thing is, do they pay interest on that borrow? Yeah. Good question. So yeah, it's, 
the um, most most companies will allow you to borrow up to ninety two to ninety five percent of your cash, essentially your equity. If you're thinking about in the in the comparison between a house, right? You have equity in your home, you can borrow against it. So it kind of operates in the same fashion. But they give you up to ninety two to ninety five percent of it because they know you're you're pretty protected. You eventually will leave this earth. <laughs> you're going to eventually graduate, right? So they have pre-protection of it. And there is interest because you are borrowing money, right? You're just borrowing it from them. You're, the, the beauty of it is that then your whole dollars that are sitting in this account are just continually growing because you haven't actually used it, right? That's usually the biggest thing they've learned across a lot of like, just taking the economic sort of philosophy, there's opportunity cost when you use cash. It just is. It stops earning in where it was sitting. Here we can let it do its boring stuff in the background, growing tax-free, and then we could borrow against it from someone else. And we pay that interest back on our terms. They dictate the interest rate, but we dictate when we pay it back. Got it. So, all right. So, you, the, yeah, got it. So the insurance company essentially makes money from the interest rate on the, on the loans. And that's how they pretty much earn their business. Correct. So, correct. Because they're going to invest it anyway, right? They're going to invest it in, in safe, fixed you know, corporate government bonds. So they're just giving the insured um, uh, policy owners first right to use it, right? If you don't use it, we're going to put it over there. But if you need it, we'll give it to you whenever you feel like it. Got it. Now, just say you borrow it and just say you borrow it over a three-year term, as an example. What happens? You're 18 months into it and you die. So then the death benefit that is always going to be bigger than the cash pays off the the loan any outstanding loan and the rest goes to your beneficiaries got it so okay so there's really no like so if i borrow 92 thing it's not like you get like eight percent of it because you borrowed 92 percent and and you know too bad you lost the rest it's yeah whatever the accumulation is you're getting minus the debt yes because your death benefit until the day that you turn i know the age for some of the ones in, in in canada but in us up to 121 age 121. Up until that point, your death benefit's always higher than your cash. So there's always a spread. So you can have $200,000 of, of cash and you have a million dollar policy. If you have a $100,000 loan, that million dollars when you die pays off the $100,000 loan and 900000 goes tax-free to your heirs. Right. And like when you're building equity there, right? Like prime example, just say I put in 200,000 into the policy and obviously it's earning whatever interest rate it's earning. And I'm assuming the interest is actually that you're paying is going to be lower than the interest that it's earning, or at least on average. And so what happens if I borrowed just say 150,000, the 200,000 itself is still earning interest. So I'm getting interest on the 200,000 and just say on average, we're going to use 7% just because I know that 7% means that um, the money doubles every 10 years. And um, I only know that because we use that in real estate as an example. So (laughs) I didn't do the calculation. (laughs) So with that being said, now just say 10 years goes by, um, that 200,000 would double to 400,000 as an example. But my $150,000 loan is, I'm assuming I'm paying it monthly, would diminish. Yeah. Yeah. And it's up to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And so... You know, regardless of the the math of it, it's just conceptually understanding that the compounding of your wealth, just, you know, like compound interest, you want your money to constantly compound over time, right? It takes a while. 
right? And this is allows your money to stop being disrupted. If you had a bank account, you took it out, it stops earning. You got to put it back in, right? Yep. And so you disrupt it. So this allows it just like your you know, real estate, you don't want to sell your real estate, especially if it's growing and compounding, you could borrow against it and allow it to continue to grow, right? For decades or even intergenerational wealth, right? This is the kind of stuff that we're talking about, building this so then it funds the next generations too. So it just perpetuates that compounding and doesn't disrupt it. So yeah, so it, really the loan itself is two point up to you to pay it back, right? And some people die with it and it's okay. But to be a responsible uh, banker, we call it, like you would want to pay it back, especially as you're growing your wealth, right? Just like you borrowed it from the bank, from the bank, right? You pay it back, right? Same concept. Now, here's the other question, though. Things happen in life. Then, you know, bad things, good things, you know, just things happen. And what happens if, you know, you borrow it and you're borrowing 150 grand and you're doing it in your own head based on the fact that, well, I have a job, you know, I'm working at a brokerage that's paying me $100,000 a year. And so I could pay it back and I'm going to do it over three years. All of a sudden, a year into it, we get into the so-called recession or whatever it is, and I lose my job and now I can't make the payments. What happens now? Well, that's the beauty of the flexibility, because if you just take it from the other side. If you had a bank, would they continue to make sure you're, they would, would they want you to continue to make payments on your note if the bank loaned it to you? Yeah, they would want the money. And on top of that, they'll, uh, the minute you, they hear, you hear they don't have a job, they're going to probably want to call the loan and bastardize your credit as a punishment for losing your job, as if losing your job wasn't bad enough. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so you hit it spot on. So here in this situation, because you control the terms of it, you can pause it right? Interest will accrue, but you can pause it and figure out your next stage with your job or whatever the situation is. You have ample time to figure out how to fund it, right? There's no obligation to make any monthly payments. I would encourage people to do it, but, but to your situation, John, if you needed to pause for any situation, you could, right? And so as long as you have some, this is just being a, a, a good steward of your money too, is don't go, don't borrow too much, right? You don't want to over leverage yourself on these things. Have cushion, have, and I'm a big fan of having a lot of cash and a lot of emergent, I call it emergency and opportunity money, because you never know when something's going to pop on your desk and say, oh my God, I'm the only one with cash who could do this, right? It happens, right? And so I, 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 I agree with you, do not over leverage it. But in this situation, if you borrowed some of it, you have time, right? To, to remedy whatever situation you have, because you can you can stop payments whenever you feel like it. Fascinating. Now, if I had just say $300,000, this is a hypothetical. I have a $300,000. I want to typically put it into a house. But now I come across this. I hear about this. And I think this is a better opportunity. I almost would want to put the $300,000 into this policy and then borrow maybe a quarter million of it for my down payment. And because of that, in a way, I can sort of have both sides of the fence here. And I believe because just like insurance is not um, is not taxable, it's also probably not considered a debt in the banking terms. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but I, I'm going based on uh, this. Like if you get it, because like when I, I also have my mortgage license and when you go for a down payment, the first question is, where did the money come from? Right. Right. Because it's uh, really what they're doing is they're playing police and they're playing police to make sure you're not laundering the money or uh you you know proceeds of illegal crime or of any kind of form right and um i, I wasn't aware that bankers and realtors were uh, police agents but apparently <laughs> they are these days and um 
but where I'm going with this is the fact that now when you say you got it from an insurance policy, I'm curious to know if they would count that because technically it is a liability because I have to pay you back, but on paper it's not. It's, no. sort of, it, it's kind of fascinating. So I'm, I'm curious to the answer if they can use that money as, a, as their down payment. Because I've, I've done it that way for my real estate, right? I've taken it from there and it's, it's factored as cash, right? It's just coming from their source. So it is not traditional, what most people think, because they think it's coming from a bank. But in this situation, it's coming from your own personal bank, right? And I call it affectionately a family bank, this sort of insurance for policy, right? And so it's, I've done it for you know, rental properties, I've done it to, to, to loan to others. And, and so, yeah, it, it works like cash. That's fascinating, right? So it, like to me, I see this as an opportunity. Oh, it, it, it is. And, you know, and that's why some of it's just learning mechanics. And if you're, you know, honest and with, with financing and discipline with it, it's just the same thing. It's just you have more flexibility to it, right, than a typical bank. Now, here's the biggest question of them all, which is, is there a minimum amount to put into this policy? Well, a lot of the things are designed because it is life insurance. So you have to qualify, you have, have good health, right, and good habits. And, and obviously when we're designing them, we want to make sure you're thinking about long-term uh, in terms of holding it and dying with these policies. So it's also ensuring that you have um, some financial discipline in your life already, right? I wouldn't want to put someone into these things until they got that, right? Having positive cash flow and good, good sort of spending habits, those sorts of things. So. It all depends on, you know, the, the life insurance policy death benefit will dictate how much you can put into this. And so you have to see what kind of what you qualify based on your income or your assets. They're protecting your life. So you have a value. You and I both have individual values, <laughs> right? I, I resent that. I want <laughs> to think I'm invaluable. <laughs> So that's what, that always goes back to those things like, oh, I don't want to be overinsured. Well, the insurance company will never allow that to happen, right? They're not in the business to overinsure people and send people to use policies, right? And, and, and take extra risks. So they're never going to overinsure you. So they're going to take your income, you're going to take your assets and figure out how much you're valued at. And then they assess your health. And that's how they determine what you could put it, right? Depending on that. If you only make, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, right, and you're younger, you could you're probably worth like you're probably going to work another 20, 30 years. You're worth millions of dollars, right? You're an asset, right? So that's how they determine that. So there's a lot of unique things that go into it, but you know, there's not an absolute minimum. Right, right. Which uh, brings up the other point, um, like. In terms of life insurance, uh, like the one that's promoted the most is uh, the fixed term, right? And like the fixed term, which to me, I think is the worst option. Now, I don't think it's, if you have family and kids, let me be clear. If you have family and kids, I don't think it's, and you're just literally worried about their survival, that fixed term, if that's the only way you can afford it, because that's usually lower premiums, I think that is a better version of not having it over not having it but reality is that um if you have a fixed term you do 25 years and it's gone and then it's like all that payment went into an insurance company and you got jack shit from it for lack of better description and so to me that's kind of sort of like you know you don't wake up and say well hmm, i'm gonna die and collect so it's one of those things that it's 
kind of that oxymoron for a lack of better description. Yeah. Yeah. Now they promote the universal uh, income or whatever it's called. And I find that one there. I think it looks good on paper, but when you do the actual math, I don't think it pays off all that well. So now most people don't do the math. They just hear, Ooh, I'm going to pay these premiums and I can get 50 grand in cash out of that. Wow. And everybody wants to do that. You haven't realized that by the time you can take that 50 grand, you've already put in a hundred. You're not ahead. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just a not, I mean, I mean, I made up that hundred part. I, I don't know the math. I've done it once, but I don't remember. Uh, it's just the point is that mathematically it, when you compare it to, to a, 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 to the fixed term, the, like the cash value at the end kind of thing, assuming that you do collect, it doesn't make sense. Like they don't add up. Now this is something totally different. And I think more people can benefit from something like this over those two options, but nobody promotes this. Why? Why do people? Why do the companies not promote this product? Well, I think a lot of it, you know, just like anything in life, like you know, over the course of time, people want something different and sexier, right? A lot of the evolution of all these products happened because of that. So, you know, it used to be whole life um, was it, right? And so people are like, okay, well, I need something temporary in terms or can do it. Um, the universal life sort of got into place when at the time when like interest rates were really high, right? And so they're looking for an alternative. They wanted to build some flexibility. So the one good thing about universal life, it can be very more flexible than the whole life products. However, there's a trade-off. The flexibility you get also gives that to the life insurance company. They can change cost structures, right? There's less guarantees to you as an insurance uh, holder. And so it's a give and take with that. And what happens, and unfortunately, what happens, it happened to my father this way, um, the f- too much flexibility caused him to be less disciplined with it. And what happened? Thing exploded because it ate itself up. Like all the cash went away, <laughs> right? To pay the premiums and to pay the death benefit. And there was no cash buildup because it gave him so much flexibility. He didn't wasn't disciplined, disciplined enough to fund it. So this is where in my world, in terms of what we're using it for, to fund investments, finance life, you can finance education. You can read all about this, like famous families like Rockefellers use this sort of model as a family banking environment because it's stability, right? It's stable, right? And a whole host of private aspects of it around taxation, being sued for it. But it also pushes people to be a little more disciplined because you have to fund these things over time, right? And that's a good thing for people because you need to save money yeah. somewhere, yeah. right? It's a discipline. I've dealt with real estate investors and you know, I'm thinking that their, their biggest benefit from, so I can borrow against, I control the terms. Great, all wonderful. Then it gets back down to the basic. Tom, it gives me a place that I got to save money for my family. It forces it. And that is kind of an understated thing. When you have so much flexibility, it's, life can get in the way. And you don't save and then it could be your decades later and you're like what do i do right i haven't saved anything so it is one of those kind of psychological games too absolutely now you brought up a lot of points here that anybody watching or listening should uh heed on this too many this gives you flexibility this gives you options now a lot of people are going to hear this and say hey i got ways to put money in and then take it right back out and i can use it now where i want to heed caution on this this is not an opportunity for you to put money away and save so then you can use the money later to buy your Ferrari. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this, if you're going to go and do the traditional, 
consumerism and go buy fancy technology, fancy phones, fancy cars, then do yourself a favor and just either learn not to do that or just spend your money and call it a day. Because what happens is you could, in a sense, blow up yourself by doing this. If you look look at the examples of how this is used, the majority of people who benefited from this are benefiting because they didn't get into consumerism. They're benefiting because they use that money and double, basically use the same money and double invested. So you had two avenues growing. Avenue one, you have the policy growing. Avenue two, just say real estate, just because I'm a real estate fan, you just say you buy a single family home to rent out. I hate those, anybody knows me, but, but I'm using it as an example. You have that single family home that you're renting out and you're collecting your rents and it's building equity there. So you have two assets that are growing for the price of one loan versus having one loan, one asset matching. That's your two for one deal. If you're using it in that sense, phenomenal opportunity. If you're gonna use it to buy Porsches, Lamborghinis, or any kind of consumerism, spend your damn money, don't look back and stop complaining. That's my <laughs> perspective. I love it, I love it. No, it's it's spot on, you're right. It's not, that's why I always press upon my clients too, is, is use it to buy assets and let those assets pay for your toys, right? If you, you gotta delay gratification, that's the hardest part. Right. I think a lot of the game and, and focus on like exactly what you're saying, building, investing in your business, investing wherever, multifamily, single family, wherever, wherever, you know, better. Right. That's going to reduce the risk all, all to itself that you're investing in things that you already understand. Right. That's what I press on, whether it's stocks, I don't care, wherever you feel best. But to your point, use it to drive the assets first and then use the cash flow to, to kind of pay for your things. Right. Absolutely. I believe in that. that. That's my my philosophy is use your in, earned income to pay your bills and to invest and use your investment income for everything else coming, you know, going forward to live Absolutely. off your life, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing for what in, in part of this, too, is, you know, it's funding in and we know life can, you know, take us a bunch of different directions and pull us. So it's it's also that factor is trying to you know, be efficient in how you operate in terms of taxation and other things to make sure you keep more of your money and that have it grow for longer periods of time. So it might not show up in year one or two, but, you know, when you know, I look back and some of the things I'm now I'm sitting here 20 years later off of starting it, it's like it becomes a machine of cash like that grows. It just takes time, <laughs> right? In discipline. Right. Just like anything successful, right? Your business or your relationships, all the same thing. All overnight successes became successes after overnight successes after 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, absolutely love this. Let me get into a last couple more questions before I get into what I call the lightning round. All right. So second last question is going to be, how do you know you've had a successful day? Wow. That's a great question. I would say for me, um, twofold. One is that, that I... I, I try to really target one or two major things to get done in a day. And so I'm, I feel really successful when I focused and got them done. The worst things, right? The hardest things got them uh, accomplished. I feel that's a success. And the second part is because I'm just a constant learner is that I found something that I learned that day and helped me in any shape in my life, in any area of my life, that's made me better, right? So that to me is also a success. Love that. 
Awesome. Last before the lightning round is going to be for anybody watching or listening and for those who we've intrigued, where would they uh, find you? Yeah, you can definitely go to my website, uh, perennialpride.com. I'll have some re- resources there. I have a book, uh, uh, Wealth, Wealth uh, Beyond the Numbers. I talk about just a lot of things that I that help me to feel wealthy and not just my finances, but my life, right? Uh, just a little chronicle to my sons and I just wrote it and, and you can check that out there, but that'd be the best place. Fantastic, love that. Awesome. So let's get into the lightning round with question number one, which is going to be, what is your favorite food and why? Uh, it's got to be pot thai. My family's from Thailand, and I just have such fond memories of watching my mom make it as a little child. And I now I get to make it with my son, and it's like a constant generational wealth of, of, of food making. So it's a wonderful experience and, and something that's always... Uh, uh, warms my heart. I love that as well. And it's not for the same reason for me, because it was unique and different and something that I was against what I normally had. And then I just got used to it and loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought uh, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's one of those things that, uh, you know what, sometimes you're used to a certain thing and then you try something different and you're like, whoa, where has this been? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. All right. Favorite travel destination and why? Ooh, that's a good one. I would have to say my favorite so far has been to uh, Scotland. I think Scotland was uh, something I got to do with my family and and, and sort of my sibling and her families. And it was, uh, you know, it was a place that I thought I knew. But as I explored it around, I really saw a different light of that the history around that, that country, the openness of the people and just the uh, progressive nature of how they thought. And it was just an eye-opening place. It was just beautiful too, and so many unique areas to explore. So I loved it. Interesting. I, I got to put that on my list of places to go. Awesome. All right. Favorite podcast and or book. Favorite book. Um, I'd have to have have to go with uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad is my favorite book. I think I've read that over and over again and get something different from it. Um, doesn't give you every tangible thing to do but I think it allows you to think a little bit differently. So I'll have to go with that one. Love it. It was a great book as well. I agree with you. Um, Last but not least, if you were given unlimited amount of money, but only 48 hours to spend it, what you spend, you get to keep. What you don't spend gets taken away. What would you do? Oh my God. (laughs) What I spend, I get to keep? Correct. I would, to me, I would spend my money on, actually, I'm sitting in a library. I'd buy libraries. Because I get to keep the wealth of knowledge in this place with me forever. And I got a, hopefully a lifetime to learn it all. So I would buy libraries and books so I could keep it with me forever. Wow, that's an amazing thing. That is awesome. Now, the reason I asked that and I asked it in those questions and that way is because a lot of times if you turn around, like the common question is just, if you were giving a million dollars or you won the lottery, what would you do? And it's always like, oh, I'd pay off my mortgage, I'd buy this, <laughs> right? And it's always the nonsense. It's almost like people are answering commercialism because they feel they have to, but it's not their true desires, right? So I ask it the way I do because it requires people to think about it. And I have to answer that question of what do I really want, right? And then, and, and then you, you kind of get that answer as a result of the way I asked it. Yeah, that was definitely a misdirect. That was a great question. I've never heard that before. (laughs) Thanks. Awesome. Tom, this has been phenomenal. I want to say thank you so much. 
I really appreciate it. It's so much fun. And I appreciate you sort of me being on the show and, and, and I love your show. And so thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to the John Papaloni Show.